0: well yeah i'm really sorry uh to have to (laughs) be with you like this this morning um kind of a weird thing we were at my my mom was ordained on friday night um and so we were down in livermore for the norcal district assembly and then uh, just coming back yesterday just felt a little achy in the afternoon and everything and um slept took a test Early this morning, that we had had at home, um, and it came back positive. So, I am um, just here in my office. Hopefully, we're trying to make it through here. But our our gospel reading um, is from John chapter thirteen, verses thirty-one to thirty-five. And we'd love for you to join us there. If you have Bibles, I know screens are at a premium this morning. So, if you have Bibles, if you want to open up to that. John thirteen thirty one to 35, it reads, When he had gone out, Jesus says, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to, to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So, uh, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, would you pray with me? Jesus, we do thank you for being with us in all of these, um, just even strange ways. Um, that we come together in in these days, God, I pray that um, you would be with us as your church as we come to the text and and put ourselves in your hands, Lord, trusting that you'll speak to us, uh, that you will do your work to save and redeem us this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wanted to ask, um, who helped you move into the last place that you moved? Uh, was it friends? Was it people that you have a personal connection with or was it movers? Um, I, I remember when we moved to, to Sacramento here, I came up by myself and, um, and I, Tom and, uh, Richard, Al and Jack, you all were, were very involved, uh, in the process of getting us moved into the house that we stayed at briefly out on Bruceville road. And then, um, and then even over into our apartments over here on old Placerville road, Tom, I remember sitting at in and out with you and Al. Um, Richard, I, I have a memory of us driving in the truck back to Elk Grove talking actually about the book of Revelation, which we're going to, pre- which I'm going to preach a little bit on um, this, this morning. Al, I, I, I have a, a little bit of a memory there of, of just tapping uh, the gutters of your parents' house with the U-Haul truck. And the point of that being that as we kind of come into uh, these kind of events, when we do them together, there's a different kind of connectedness. There's a different kind of thing that happens when we do them with people that we know. Uh, Andy Crouch is somebody I've talk to, I've talked about before, but he tells this story, um, about how he had several friends when he was, uh, first married move, he and his wife into their, their condo or their house there. They had these three things that his wife had inherited from her grandmother. They were a, uh, a fragile old chest of drawers, a queen sized box spring. And he calls it an unfathomably he- heavy sofa bed. Um, they had to move these things upstairs. And so they, they christened them, he said, the ordeal of delicacy, right? The, the, the chest of drawers, uh, the, the ordeal of dimension. How are you going to get a queen-size box spring up narrow stairs? And the ordeal of strength, the big old sofa bed. He writes, 20 years later, we remember these ordeals. The friends who cheerfully endured them with us, sweating and swearing on a hot June day, and the sense of relief when we managed to overcome each one. A couple years later, they move again. And this time the the people who had uh, hired his wife pay for the movers. And so then he writes, the professional movers went through the same ordeals on our behalf that our friends had gone through a few years before, sweating and likely swearing as well. But I certainly cannot remember their names or even a hint of their faces. They were paid fairly to do a fair job. And once the job was done, they were gone. This is the power of money. It allows us to get things done, often by means of other people without the entanglements of friendship. To this day, I owe my friends something for the move early in our marriage. At the very least, my thanks and my affection. Indeed, I already owed them something before the move. To be a friend is to be intertwined with someone else in a loose but permanent way. But our relationship, such as it was with the professional movers was different. It began and ended with a modern form of magic, A transaction that, without the slightest actual effort on our part, transported all our possessions. I think this is so important, and maybe it's emphasized by the fact that I'm sitting here coming to you through a different sort of modern magic. Um, That, yes, I'm probably not going to get anybody sick, um, but there's also a thinness. There's something not quite as good about being in person. As I read that Revelation passage, Revelation 19, 1 to 9, I am um, just really taken and, and moved by it, in large part because if you know the whole story of Revelation, um, when you finally come to chapter 19, 1 to 9, it, it, it makes quite a difference. Um, in chapter 1 of Revelation, Jesus reveals himself to John. In fact, that is, in some ways, the revelation. we. It's not revelations, because um, the book of Revelation is not about this series of things that happen. It's revelation. It's one thing that's being revealed. And in fact, it's, it's, it's one person that's being revealed. It is Jesus who's being revealed to John. So in chapter one, Jesus reveals himself to John. In chapters two and three, Jesus has these messages that he speaks to the churches. In chapters four and five, which we kind of read and talked about two weeks ago, John is invited to look into heaven and see, despite all of the challenges that are facing his churches, those seven churches that Jesus speaks messages to are, are churches that are about to undergo persecution. Some of them have already suffered. Some of them have already given in to the temptation around them. Whether that's the temptation of wealth, whether that's the the temptation to look like the people around them and, and to give up some of the harder teachings that come along with the gospel. So Jesus invites John into, kind of importantly, into heaven. Chapters four and five, he's invited to see that despite all of the challenges facing the churches, there's something eternal happening in heaven. It's kind of like that that movie or play or, or whatever. You probably saw the Muppet version more than any other version, um, but is a Christmas carol where Ebenezer Scrooge is invited to see the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas future, and the ghost of Christmas present, except Instead of seeing these three ghosts, it's like John is invited to see sort of the the ghost of worship eternal, the thing that is really going on always above us, the thing that is even more real than we are, so that as he looks into heaven and sees the worship that's going on around the throne and as he sees the the, the book that is sealed and and the lamb who was slain, the only one who can undo the seals and read the message that's contained in that book, he sees the, the reality that, that that really is. John sees that he himself, in comparison, he's the ghost. He's the one who isn't real. What's going on in heaven is the real thing. The question is how do we match our lives to the real thing that's happening? heaven so as he looks in he finds that the cry of the earth the the, the sense of injustice that the saints crying out from under the altar they know that something is wrong and that cry just like the cry of the slaves of of israel in egypt that it reaches god's ears that he hears and he listens and then there's this scroll this word that announces something vital And we're still kind of in the arc of revelation here in chapter six, you get the first six seals get unsealed all all in one chapter. Boom, 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 boom. These these seals get opened up and it's bad news when the seals get opened up. Now, remember that the seals are not the message that's in the book. The seals are the thing that unlock the book. Right. They're the thing that unlock the scroll. They are not in themselves the message. It's, it's a little bit like, it's a little bit like the flood in Genesis. These judgments that come from God, they're kind of this undoing of creation, this unmaking of everything that's good. And then we get the passage that Pastor Cody read and, and preached through a little bit last week, which is chapter seven, the protection and the sealing of God's people, which includes not only people from every tribe of Israel, but people from every tribe and every nation on earth. That from every language and and place, we see the goodness of God. If the first six seals, if chapter six is like the flood, the, the unmaking of creation, then chapter seven, this sign of God keeping and protecting his people is like the ark. This sense that, okay, we may be moving Through here in a way that causes suffering in the moment, but God is going to keep his people safe. And so both Jew and Gentile are folded in to the announcement of God's victory. Now, think about this. If you're a part of a really little church that's struggling, that's being persecuted that the governor and the soldiers and the police of the day and everybody is kind of coming after you and not wanting you to be who God has called you to be, then this is really good news. John is saying that the experience of persecution and rejection in this life, the ways that we come to know and to see, the ways that we This is actually normal for believers who believe and trust and follow the Lamb who was slain. The normal thing is not for Christians to be on top and to have it all down and to have the world around us cater to the way that we want to live our life. The normal way, according to Scripture, is that the people of God would persist despite persecution. But the other way that it's good news, we know that this is not the end of the story. That we belong to the great host of peoples who serve the Lord who is over all of creation. And so we, as the people of God, are able to look out in this moment, <coughs> excuse me, and to see and to know and to live with the confidence that what's really real is the thing that's going on in the heavens. Well, most of the rest of the book of Revelation and the reason that we skip from chapter seven last week to chapter 19 this week is because everything in the middle is this kind of unfolding of the same cycle. John's the visions that God gives to John just sort of open up this this same sort of cyclical thing where we see that all who recognize the throne and the lamb suffer but are preserved and that all who reject God's authority appear victorious, but that that victory is vacuous and empty. Until finally we get to chapter 18. We get to the kind of end of history. To where all these things are pointing, to where they're all going. The fall of Babylon. Babylon. This here, too, is an encouragement for those who are in the struggle. Because not only is there a throne in heaven with the lamb on it who reigns over all, there are forces in rebellion against that throne who seek to set up an alternative kingdom. We know this. There are forces that are set up against God. And, And many of those forces want to... Make us a part of their war against God. Many of those forces want to bring us into their way of living that is not a way of life, but is in fact a way of death. And so Revelation uses the imagery of Babylon, just like the prophets of the Old Testament, uses the imagery of Babylon to make clear that there is a system that's set up against God's way. And so chapter 18 talks about the great kind of the great prostitute is the language that it uses and we kind of have to ask what or who is Babylon and I'm sure there's a whole industry of people who want to print books and pamphlets and blog posts and all kinds of things that are going to let you know who Babylon is but I think and again um if we were in Uh, Kind of a Bible study that went deeply through this. We could spend a lot of time here and maybe, maybe we should do that. But I'm going to give you my basic answer here, which is that Babylon is a system that if you read it closely, uses the allure of wealth and sexual immorality and the power of luxury to entice and ultimately to destroy the kings and the people of the earth. Biblically, if you go all the way back to Genesis, Babylon, Babel, is the cradle of civilization. It's the place that people gather together in cities and right away in the Tower of Babel begin to rebel against God. Over the course of Scripture's story, that becomes the city of Babylon. That becomes places like Ugarit. That becomes places like Nineveh or Egypt or Greece or Rome. And if we pull that forward into today, yes, it's even places like the United States or Beijing, places that will use wealth and sexual immorality and the power of luxury to set us in opposition to the Lord, to set us up in opposition to the true king, to the true throne, to the lamb who was slain, who rules forever and ever. Jesus used a different name that that still sort of um, describes the same reality. Jesus used the name Mammon. In Jesus' day, Mammon was kind of understood as this demonic or idolatrous entity that personified wealth and greed. And so he tells his disciples and those listening to him in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, you cannot serve both God and Mammon. There are some masters, there are some rulers that that demand your allegiance. They demand all of who you are, and so you can't kind of serve the Lord here and then also have these other idols on the side. Andy Crouch, the guy with the ordeals in the beginning who had his friends help him move, defines mammon this way. It's something I found profoundly helpful. He says, mammon is abundance without dependence. Mammon is abundance without dependence. If you want abundance in your life, you want wealth and friendships you want money and an easy retirement you want family to just kind of gather around you at birthdays and then leave you around alone the rest of the time you want this kind of life that that pours in and pours in but doesn't require anything of you that is mammon and so often that's actually what and who we serve this idea of the abundance of life without being dependent on those things that pour into us. This is why we look out in the world and in our nation, I mean, frankly, we stand kind of at the pinnacle. We stand at the top. And yet we don't bear the burden so often of actual dependence, the the consequences of the kind of lifestyles that we live. This is why John uses the image of a prostitute. Because it's abundance. It's it's taking. Without the dependence, without the binding that comes with marriage or with offspring. Andy Crouch has a whole sort of theory here about the three powers of money. But suffice it to say that that money is dangerous simply because we can do that kind of modern magic with it. We can turn it into all kinds of things. We can take money and turn it into our furniture getting moved. We can take money and and turn it into a a vehicle that gets us across vast distances incredibly quickly. We can take money and and turn it into, into food that just shows up from I don't know, Chile or, or, or Afghanistan or wherever from all across the world that just shows up on our dinner table. We don't have to think about it. And we can compare ourselves to other people. Boy, how big is your retirement account? How big is your savings account? How, how big is your monthly check? Right? And we can do all kinds of comparison and say, I'm over here and you're over here and we're all sort of in this But it's all abundance without dependence. It's all life pouring into us without us actually being required to be responsible. And this is why Jesus says, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. Thieves break in and steal. But instead, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy do not break in steel. It's true of silver and of gold, it's true of cryptocurrency and investments. It's, it's true also of you know the wheat in the in the silos that Jesus would have been thinking about. But by contrast, what is the kingdom of God about? When God begins his creation, he does not begin with the Bank of Eden, right? He begins with a garden. A garden that is about life, a garden that is about worship, a garden that is about union and fellowship and relationship. All the imagery, everything that we see in that is about life. And even as we come forward here into Revelation, we have the same thing, a throne in the center of a city that has a river going forth, a city that comes down from heaven, new Jerusalem that is also a garden And finally, and most importantly, you're like, man, you've been going at this for a while. We finally get to Revelation 19. And what is the thing that shows up in Revelation 19? After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out. And we sort of, let's move down to verse six. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. Verse 9, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is what it's all pointing toward. This is where it's all going. This is where even all of our suffering and struggle is headed, toward a marriage supper. Feast toward a reception. That's what a marriage feast is. There's the ceremony, and then there is this reception where everybody is invited to the dinner to, to make this real. So over and against the, the way that the Lamb has been mocked, over and against the, the, the mockery of the Lamb, the people of God are defined in John's revelation in the New Testament and in the history of the church, not by what we see out there right not by what we see with the great prostitute with the beast all the way through the book of revelation not by money and sex and power it's the kind of unholy habits that we see arise in the new testament it's not money sex and power that define these things but poverty and chastity and humility Being a faithful Christian is not about exerting power in the world. It's not about sexual conquest or amassing dead wealth. We recognize that these things bring us into the heart of Babylon. They bring us into the heart, the one who will be killed at the end of days. And so we seek instead this relationship with those realities that that bring forth fruit they're not dead but they're instead alive see we think of poverty as just not having a lot of money but the way that the gospels think of it the way that it gets described in the new testament is a people who are generous who live simply who don't live beyond their means who don't go deeply into debt even in a society that is built on debt We think of Christians who have always affirmed that sex belongs within a single spouse with whom one can bring forth new people if God blesses that. Or that we ought to live celibate lives that speak to our willingness to wait for God's kingdom. Most contrary to our day and to the way of things that we know, Christians should not, I think, be seeking powerful positions in the world. Are we defined by humility? Are Christians both in our own church and in in the world more generally, are we defined by humility in politics and in relationships? Of course, we should always seek to convert people. We should, Paul preached to kings and to governors, right? We should make changes in our world that make it easier for people to be good. But we've gotta be careful about the thinking That if we somehow make the world match the way we think the world should go, then we've somehow succeeded. So often what happens, and what we've probably, you've probably seen, is that the temptation to power actually corrupts people. Political and temporal power is not neutral. It pulls us more deeply into the heart of Babylon. It tempts us, as we've all seen, into scandal and abuse. And it leads us away from the righteous exercise of power. So then we have to ask, how should we live? When we abandon simplicity and chastity and humility as, as the marks of the Christian life, we become like Andy Crouch paying movers to do the job, paying somebody else to go through the ordeal for us. At first, it seems fine. They get it done. It's maybe done better. You got the experts here. They know how to do this thing, right? I don't have to hang around with them or buy them pizza afterward, right? I just sort of write the check and move on. It's efficient. It's quick. But slowly and over time, we begin to realize that that kind of approach to the world leaves us alone. That kind of approach to the world does not prepare us for the kingdom of God. That kind of approach to the world does does not make us able to receive the goodness that we have in Jesus. By contrast, Revelation 19 paints an image for us where The great prostitute, remember, abundance without dependence. She's been sacrificed. She's killed and the smoke from her goes up to God, it says. The thing that comes in her place, we've already seen, is the marriage feast of the lamb. The lamb who was slain, who willingly gave himself up to sacrifice rather than being forced into sacrifice. The lamb who was slain is made one with his bride. The feast is ready. The bride is prepared. And then John tells us, she's clothed not in linen, but in righteousness. Not in a beautiful wedding dress, but in good works, in good deeds. In fact, she's clothed in love. It's her acts of love that adorn her body to cover her nakedness and prepare her to come into the presence of her husband. This is a fruitful relationship, abundance with dependence, union with offspring, the authority that God gives us to rule and to reign in the world. But it's that authority for God's glory, not for our own. See here in Revelation 19, we are the wife. We are the bride. And the way that we live speaks to the glory of God. It speaks to the glory of Jesus to save, to transform. Everything good about us makes God look better. Everything good that we do gives Jesus more glory. And so one last story. It's from John 13. Jesus is with his disciples in a borrowed room. It's not a house that they owned. It's not like he was moving around with some, you know, RV where he could host these kinds of dinners. He's in a borrowed room. Poverty, simplicity. And then John, who writes the gospel of John, tells us, having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. You see, this image in chapter 13 is about chastity. It's about that kind of focused love. The one who one is called to love, that's who one pours oneself out for. Having loved those who were his own, he loved them to the end. And then he took the posture of a slave. He stripped off his outer clothes. Here's Jesus. Stripped to the waist with a towel Wrapped around him like a slave. And with a basin and a pitcher and a towel, he washes his disciples' feet. Simplicity, chastity, humility. A few moments later, in the very sort of dark night of Jesus' being betrayed, he looks at his disciples and he says to them, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. In the same way that I have poured myself out for you, in the same way that I am a lamb, in the lamb who was slain, you are to love one another. This kind of poor and chaste and humble love stands against the mammon of the world. It stands against the Babylons. It stands against the great prostitute who wants to tempt us into abundance without dependence. This kind of life is this rebellion that can only become true because of resurrection. And it rejects anything that does not bring forth life. been trying to think about how we practically put some of this into action. I don't know exactly. There's a lot, I think, for us to think about and and to practice there, but but two thoughts here. Um, The first is that we need to become a people of life who don't leave catechism, who don't leave teaching the faith. That's what catechism means. Teaching the faith. We don't leave that to the culture, right? Whether that's with our own children or with ourselves, we don't just leave that off to somebody else. So you just walk out there and figure it out. The only way that people are going to learn to become people of faith is through the church. and as we kind of look out today i know the world has kind of been in a uproar for either a happy uproar or a sad uproar I mean, it kind of depends on where you are politically about this opinion that was leaked by uh, somebody in the uh, in the supreme court's sort of staff It looks like there's a possibility that, you know, the Roe v. Wade decision will be will be um, overturned. And as a Christian who is firmly behind, like, pro-life movements and causes and all this kind of thing, I, I would love to be able to say, you know, I, I hope, personally, I hope that happens. But looking at it, I can't look at that and say, okay, if if Roe and Casey, these two court decisions, if they're overturned, is that going to create a culture of life in our country? No, not by a long shot, right? If, If our understanding, if the church's understanding of marriage is enshrined in American law, is that going to enable chastity? By no means. Like, sometimes we want the law to do something for us that we need to be catechized to do. We want the world to make this decision. And then if they make a different decision, well, then we're all upset that things didn't go our way or that the world's against us. And if we're reading the Bible, it's like, well, of course. Of course the world's against us. What did we think was going to happen? Jesus has been telling us this is going to happen from the beginning. And so maybe what we need to begin to do as a people is say, how can I make sure that I am so deeply bound up with this life of simplicity and chastity and humility than any court decision? It doesn't do anything for me. It doesn't take away my joy. You know, I can celebrate the good things that it does for a community, for the culture. That's fine. But I'm not going to get overly caught up And thinking that I belong to that kind of culture. So that's the first thing. (laughs) Catechize. Don't leave catechism. Don't leave the teaching of the faith up to the culture. Take responsibility for yourself and for your children and for the young people around you. Secondly, let me just say, and is the importance of Sabbath. That we as Christians not become so caught up in the culture that wants to push us to work, 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 and then disappear for two weeks on vacation, right? (laughs) Work, 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 disappear. Work, 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 disappear. The model in scripture is much more balanced than that. Work six days, rest one Work six days, rest one. Every seven years, give the land a rest. It means all these kinds of interesting things. And I don't know how we actually live that out completely. But I know it's something that we as the church, we really need to wrestle with more. Because the amount of anxiety that we're dealing with, the amount of division that we're dealing with, so much of it has to do with the fact that we never breathe. We never take the time to be silent. So I want to invite you to see how can I incorporate those things into my life? How can I begin to understand what Sabbath means for me and the way that I'm living? How can I understand how I can become more deeply taught and catechized and and brought into the life of Christ? Knowing all of this I think in some ways is what it means to be clothed in righteousness. To do what Jesus says in John 13, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another, I'm going to invite pastor Cody to come up and lead us in communion and I just hope that that's on your heart and your mind today. How can I become somebody who is clothed in righteousness, who is adorned with the glory and the goodness of God? Let's pray. Jesus, we pray for Cordova Church of the Nazarene. We pray for your, you know, the Church of the Nazarene across the globe. We pray for your church more generally across the globe, Lord, that everywhere the people believe in you, desire to serve you, Lord God, that you would call us out of Babylon. You'd call us out of the way of life that is so caught up in, in the use of transactionalism and the use of transacting money, sex, and power to get what we want. And really, you've called us to this life of simplicity, of focused, devoted love, of humility. In that way, Lord, we pray that we would become a witness of the good things you are doing in the world, of the good things that you have already done through your son, Jesus Christ. Guide us and direct us, we pray, as to how we might live that out in the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen.